Welcome to a dispatch from Holly McKay. Today we're going to talk about some of the articles that Holly has written in the last few days and let Holly add additional commentary to them. Uh, good afternoon, Holly. Hi. Good. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Oh, good. Hey, let's start by talking about uh, the the first of these articles. You you had uh, you wrote an article. Uh, about uh, people having to leave their children behind and fleeing and terror and and uh, other and people with relatives in Russia that don't actually believe what's going on on the ground and preferring to believe Russian propaganda inside their country. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, you know, and I think that's really one of the common threads that I found where people, you know, pretty much everybody you talk to says that they have friends or colleagues or acquaintances uh, in Russia. Um, and that, you know, their house might be being shelled or they've been shot. And yet the relatives or friends and family, they just simply do not believe them. So I think that's really just heartbreaking. I think that it just shows you the depths of the propaganda. And it's very hard for us, I think, in 2022 to really wrap our heads around just how prevalent it is and how many people in Russia, really the only track of information that they are getting is from the state-controlled media and that they really do believe that this isn't a war, that it's some sort of liberation or special operation, as Putin says, um, and that it's just absolutely implausible that, that Russians would be would be bombing or shelling uh, their neighbors so i think it's a it's just it's a, it's a very hard it's a hard pill to swallow and even in my own experience and in sort of communicating with a few russians that don't live in russia anymore and even some of them were asking me things like are you sure that it's the russians bombing because i've heard that it's locals paying for these cities to be bombed and, and just things like that and these are people with access to all the information so um it's really is something that is is concerning um, yeah, I've heard the same. And, um, there, there is a contingent of people around the world that, um, pay heed to the Russian state media's messages and echo them. Um, and I, uh, it's a love, a degree of brainwashing that, uh, is a, a very important thing to keep track of. Um, the, uh, on the families that had to leave children behind. Yeah, so that was a particular woman that I met. Um, her name was Maria, and she'd she'd just been evacuated, and she was sort of at this transition point, which is basically just kind of a medical tent. And um, it, she'd gone through one of the humanitarian corridors, and she had a newborn baby with her, and she just had the baby a few days earlier. And because she'd had to go to the hospital to deliver, you know, in the middle of war, um, her two other children had stayed behind with a relative. And in the period of her sort of going to have her newborn baby and then um, then having to really have no choice but to be evacuated because the <coughs> Russians then came in to, to control that village um, of Hostomel, which is where her two children were, and communication lines were cut. So when I spoke to her, she was obviously, you know, very upset. She had this beautiful newborn but was extremely upset because she could not even reach her two children that were under Russian control anymore. And so I can just imagine um, that there are many stories like that and really how how devastating that is and how um, how hard that is to sort of imagine, you know, going to have this wonderful experience and giving birth and, and how traumatic that would be during war and then to, you know, to leave your children with relatives and then suddenly not be able to get to them again. And I can just imagine that's just terrifying. Oh yeah, I bet. I mean, you know, like if I can't get to my kids, I, it, it's a terrifying thought. I mean, you know, cause uh, you love them. Um, 
Speaking of that, uh, in terms of terrifying thoughts, uh, you wrote another article uh, having to do with Russia turning on journalists and um, and, and truth sayers and, and things like that. So, like, you were there um, and were part of that journalistic cadre. So t- tell us a little bit about, you know, like, what's going on with that and, and why you wrote yeah, this Yeah, I think in the time that we were there, you know, you definitely see, you know, by, you know, international law, by Geneva Convention, and not that Russia obeys to that at all, but uh, obviously journalists are considered to be non-combatants. Um, they're supposed to be neutral players, and that's why you'll often see journalists wearing, you know, big press signs on their vests and their, you know, you'll see in cars, people have even written or with tape or with spray paint, you know, press written all over their vehicle. And, and to them, that maybe is some sort of security blanket from from a Russian target. But what we've really seen with this war, and there's been several deaths of journalists, is that um, journalists, you know, that that is not, uh, you know, I think the Russians would be more than happy to take out a journalist, um, you know, whether they're being sort of individually targeted or that, you know, it's just a, a purely a fact of, of not caring about about journalists or really any civilian life for that matter. And you've definitely seen um, journalists be shot at, be killed, be struck with artillery. So it is a it is an incredibly sort of dangerous environment to to be operating in in, in a lot of situations. And so um, it just sort of goes to show you the depths of disregard for for human life. Um, in many forms. And I think, um, you know, when, when truth tellers are kind of out there trying to, you know, put a human face on this war, um, you know, it's, it's within Russia's kind of favor to, to, to take them out. I mean, they don't want, um, any extra negative publicity than, than they need. So it's just, uh, it's sort of a sad reality of, of kind of what the war has become. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, in this article, you also spent a little bit of time. Uh, discussing this bio lab thing that the, the Russians are selling as a, you know, a nefarious U.S. activity. But, um, you know, I look this stuff up and those labs are actually part of a Cold War, uh, cooperative, uh, destruction of, of bio and chemi- chemical pathogens from, from that era that the Russians fully participated in for many years. And so like, uh, you know, talk about uh, spitting the story for your convenience. Right. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that's sort of becoming just kind of a pretext for a chemical invasion, really. Um, and that's the, the concern. And, and if you look at these labs, I know that there's, you know, I mean, you could call the, you go to get a PCR test for COVID and they take it somewhere to be analyzed. I mean, technically, you know, that is a bio lab too. I mean, every country is filled with different kinds of bio labs and, and to kind of make this a nefarious issue, um, just sort of shows you how desperate the Russian, uh, propaganda really is. And, you know, unfortunately that, that appears to be kind of being used as some sort of pretext, um, of what people say could potentially be a, a chemical um, attack and and that would obviously change the dynamics of the war a lot and then you know Russia then has sort of the grounds and the pretext to then blame um, whatever happens you know on you know saying this this is part of the US the US did this or, or the Ukrainians did this or this was part of the bio lab or you know things like that that we sort of see a lot is how the the Russian machine kind of works it, it tries to set in motion um, excuses prior to to launching some of these attacks so so, um, yeah, it, it is a cause for concern, but I, uh, as much as I've looked into this issue, it's, it's a whole lot of, of nonsense. 
Yeah, well, um, so you get that, that, those kinds of stories emerging. And, and then your, the next story you wrote, uh, is, uh, is the counterpoint to that in that you're a story about, uh, the title Ukrainian soldiers battle severe injuries under the cloak of obscurity. But in it, you go over the, this reality that the Russian army has suffered a tremendous amount of losses and that the Russians are covering that up too to their own people. But at a certain point, that stuff's going to get out. Yeah, absolutely. And there was sort of a, what they're claiming to be a hack of a, one of the states, um, you know, controlled sort of, uh, I think it was a tabloid news site in Russia that sort of pegged the death toll at around 10,000. Uh, the Ukrainians will give you a much higher amount. They'll probably say, you know, it's 15 thousand or so um i think the u.s intelligence is kind of it's very hard to say but i've basically pegged the number also at around ten thousand. but but that is just astronomical for a war that is one month old i mean by comparison the united states lost i believe 2500 soldiers um in afghanistan over a period of 20 years so to be losing in excess of ten thousand soldiers and that's not even including the number of pow's and my understanding is the number of pow's is also uh, several um you know thousand if not tens of thousands so um that is sort of a massive loss for Russia and something that is going to be increasingly challenging for the Kremlin to cover up when bodies start coming back in body bags, when mothers are asking questions, um, when all sorts of men and often conscripts are disappearing. I mean, that just, again, it shows you the absolute disregard that Russia has for, for civilian life um, in this way. But it's also important to remember that that these these numbers are also used to some degree as sort of propaganda for, you know, for the Ukrainians as well. So they'll often and talk about these these high numbers of of Russian uh, casualties and deaths, but um, you don't really hear too much about the number of Ukrainians that have died in this war because that would be a huge dip to morale. So um, it's always good just to sort of be mindful of of where the information is coming from and, and how it is being used. Oh yeah, and considering this is a ground war and uh, these are uh, people in direct contact with each other in in firefights. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's impossible that the, these direct contact engagements will, will not have some casualty rates on the, on the other side as well. But, uh, something to, something to keep in mind. And I have no idea what the consequences of this will be when that, when that starts to come out in Russia and, and the Russian people start to, uh, you know, see through the bail of what the state media is telling them right now, but something definitely to watch. Um, Hey, you finished up, uh, your, uh, this, this particular substack by, uh, going outside of, uh, Ukraine and going back to Afghanistan. And in particular, you, you wrote an article about, you know, China and Afghanistan and mining. Yeah, so this was an article I'd sort of written um, that I was polishing up a little bit from my time in Afghanistan, which I got, um, my photographer Jake and I got sort of exclusive access to Mazinak, which is a, a very remote um, copper mine in Logar province. And it's it's absolutely, it's just worth so much money. And then China was able to secure a 30-year lease on Mazinak um, back in 2008. Um, you know, and, and, you know, even going back then copper didn't have the value it has now you know we didn't really have smartphones to the degree we have them now we didn't have all these electric cars so 
really this is an absolute goldmine, but the quagmire of all of this is that, you know, it's also sitting on an incredibly rich um, heritage of, of Zoroastrians and, and Buddhist temples and, and things that have been, you know, in Afghanistan for, for many, many centuries. And so the quagmire really is, does the Taliban, um, you know, A, have the capability to, to really work with China and what, does that pose for geopolitically in terms of having that kind of influence over the mining industry, but then also in order to get to those reserves under the ground, you know, how much of this incredible heritage is going to be destroyed in that process. So it is um, sort of a, you know, a complex issue that the Taliban has to navigate around. Um, of course, you know, we, we saw them in 2001 blow up the Buddhas in Bamiyan, um, right now, they've said that they, you know, their orders are to preserve some of these cultural and, and heritage sites. But of course, you know, 2001, that was five years into the Taliban's first reign that they decided to do that. So they are temperamental. Only time will tell. We don't really know. Um, but it's going to sort of be something for, I think, people to to keep their eye on what happens with Mazinak, especially as the Taliban really does need need that money. So um, you know, and and to what degree, you know, China is is kind of ready to come back in and, and to work with them directly to to procure that mine as as it, you know, it does have the lease. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's uh and it's at uh, least it's been there for uh, a while. And um the world as it converts away from an oil economy to an electric economy needs those minerals. And China is certainly one country that, that covets them. So that, that's an interesting watch, uh, thing to watch as well. Well, Holly, it's been an interesting conversation and I thank you very much for, uh, uh, putting more illustration to the articles that you've written recently. Um, and, uh, for the audience, you know, we we're doing this kind of stuff now to uh, let Holly add color to the writing that she makes and we hope you enjoy it. So thank you, Holly, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Dennis.